Evening, everyone. Welcome. Any questions tonight? A couple of evenings ago, you were describing um, when you were speaking about Mahaprabhu speaking with Prakashananda Saraswati and the Mayanadis that um, at one point you were describing how Buddhism uh, took off from the Upanishads and Shankara and the Vaishnava Sampradaya um, stemmed from study of the Vedanta Sutra. Did I hear that? The idea is that the prominent face of the um, followers of the Veda at the time of the Buddha were those who follow the Veda in pursuit of material acquisition. In the Gita, Krishna says, Trigunya Vishaya Veda, Nistrigunya Bhavardhana, Nirvan Vanitya Sattvastona Yoga Chematmavan. He says, Trigunya Vishaya Veda, Trigunya. Trigunya means the three gunas. Sattva Rajas Tamas, that means the world. Hmm? Nirguna means beyond the world, transcendence. So he says, Trigunya Vishaya Veda, the, uh, the subject of the Vedas is primarily that which is found within the influence of the three gunas. Hmm? So the Vedas have both material and spiritual knowledge. Hmm? And given that the majority of the Veda deals with material knowledge, the majority of the people who are the followers of the Vedas are interested in material life of material acquisition. You can call it the karma mark, the path of karma. It's a way of pursuing material acquisition that is um, organized and systematic hmm, and takes into consideration various uh, influences. Hmm. Nature acknowledges, for example, in a basic sense that one's individual pursuit of sense objects through their senses is dependent upon something in the macrocosm or nature hmm, in order for that that corresponds with that particular sense in order for that to be um, that object to be attained. For example, eyes with eyes we want to see certain objects of sight, forms but we're dependent upon light, or the sun, for example, in order to see. So sun and light corresponds with the eyes, and it's an example of something in the macrocosm of nature that corresponds with the microcosm of, the, of nature in the form of our body, and this particularly in the form of the eyes. So the eyes pursue senses, objects of sight, and they're dependent upon sun in order to do so. Hmm. Light. So we have a relationship with uh, nature and properly understood we're dependent entities and with some gratitude hmm, we should uh, acknowledge our dependence and then we can arguably live happy 
in the pursuit of material acquisition. Except for the fact that this, that it doesn't change the uh, the fact that material acquisition is something that is not ours to keep. Or even if it was, the body through which we seek to acquire it for doesn't endure. So, although we're talking about a, a, a gratitude-filled life of material pursuit, a religious orientation to life. Um, it has its shortcomings. The whole idea of material acquisition is problematic because what we acquire, we cannot keep, and when we're attached to things that we cannot keep, then those very things that we think will be the source of our happiness are the source of our distress. So, that's problematic in general, but this is the, where most people are at. So most people are in pursuit of material acquisition, so let's license it. Hmm? So to speak, let's regulate it. If people are going to smoke marijuana, let's regulate, let's tax it. Something like that. Hmm? So if people are, if living beings in human dress coming out of animality are now coming to humanity, let's temper, color, shade that humanity with spirituality hmm? by way of recognizing that the pursuit of human human life, the call of the human senses, hmm, if you will, it should be done in the context of understanding that we're dependent entities hmm, and so on. So we should appreciate the sun and uh, the wind and the rain and so there are the gods and the goddesses of um, in Hinduism and uh, properly understood through the the veneration of them and so forth is constitutes living with a sense of gratitude and you have a license for sense indulgence, whereby you will not get the kind of karmic effects that might be uh, negative, hmm? as you would get from stealing something, for example. Um, so that the whole pursuit of your material life, if you will, which in a, just a broad generic sense is a life of acquisition. Hmm? It's a life of pursuing material happiness through acquiring and avoiding material distress. That's basically the sum and substance of it. So to do it in the best possible way that you'll get the best possible results. And so the idea is that such a life properly performed can culminate in a heavenly type of existence hmm? where there will be an enduring life of sense indulgence without the repercussions of death and others, others in disease for a long, 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 long time, longer than we can imagine. Uh, this is the idea given in a the, in the sacred text. So it's, it's almost like so long, that it's not, it sounds like forever, but it's, of course it's not. And, and any amount of time is insignificant in comparison to eternity. So that's why Krishna says, and I think we cited this verse the other night, 
in the Gita, Abrahma Bhuvanaloka Punado Arjuna, Arjuna. From the Brahmaloka, the highest planet as it's thought, on down, hmm, whose life is many times more, many times longer than the, uh, the denizens of the heavens, it's thought, um, everyone has to, has to die. Abrahma Bhuvanaloka Punaro Arjuna Arjuna. But by contrast, one who comes to me, in my abode, the implication is they don't have to take birth again. So they acquire, if you will, themselves, which never dies anyway, in a knowing sense of what myself is, separate from the body and separate from the mind. And... Um, and that by way of a super-acknowledgement, if you will, not only of gratitude shown um, in terms of acknowledging one's dependence in the pursuit of fruits of one's actions, but acknowledging the the whole, the the, the 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 whole, the, the source, if you will, even of the gods, and and uh, and entering into a life of uh, devotion. So it's one thing to live religiously and acquire and worship gods to get things. Hmm. It's another thing to do bhakti. I've given an example before that years ago, when we were young, when Prabhupada first took us to Vrindavan. He had acquired a piece of property uh, way in the outskirts in Raman Reti as, as by way of a donation. And um, he was just beginning to build his uh, Krishna Balaram Mundir there. And so the nearest market in town was Loi Bazaar, which is Loi means wool. So it was a wool merchant's market. But in the wool merchant's market, there was just like if you go to the, some market in town and on that street, there's a lot of shoe stores. There are other little stores, too. So that was the nearest market, and we would go to that market to get whatever, to get tea lock, to get beads, to get a little crown for our deity, um, and so forth. So Loi Bazaar became the place where Prabhupada's Western disciples were, were going and shopping when they were in Vrindavan. They were shopping for, for deities and for their temple and for their personal devotional attire to get saris the ladies would buy and dotis and so forth. And so um, all the merchants in Loi Bazaar, they, you know, they liked us very much. And, uh, and after some time, they were getting wealthy, comparatively. And after a while, you'd see, this was going on for years, so it, was, it became probably the wealthiest market in, in Vrindavan. You know, at, at one point, um, I have seen like three, at least three generations now, because the, the, the father became, saw uh, knew his son. His son became the owner. Father retired, and now his son's son is running the shop, like Dinesh Cloth. You know, Dinesh Cloth Merchant. Dinesh became famous because of me. His shop flourished because of me, because there was another shop, Ganga Prashad. Who that sold cloth also, and they were way more popular. 
but Dinesh was the son of Dinesh, and then he was just a young boy. He would come up on a bicycle to Krishna Balaram Temple, seeking, you know, business, so to speak. So he met me, and I understood what he was doing. So I felt compassionate, so I took him in. So I began to shop at his shop. Hmm? Then he would take a picture, and he'd put my picture there, you know, that kind of thing. Um, <laughs> um, now his son is in, in running the running the shop, um, and pretty soon it's going to make his son's son. So it's, it's been going on for a while. But at any rate, my point is that at a certain point, just like Dinesh took my picture and put it in his shop, and and uh, at a certain point, shopkeepers had Prabhupada's picture showing up in the shop. So we thought, oh, we'll go to that shop. They like Prabhupada. They worship Prabhupada. Yes, we worship Prabhupada here. So they, they loved Prabhupada. They worshipped Prabhupada. Why? <laughs> because if they had his picture there, they knew this, we would come and, and buy. This is the karma mark. So we worship God for that. Hmm. We worship Vishnu because if we worship Vishnu, we know then that's part of the Varnashram system and therefore our pursuit of good karma or material acquisition will be fruitful. So there's not a lot of love there. It's a business arrangement. Bhakti, by comparison, obviously is very different. We worship Krishna, not for material acquisition, but for the sake of pleasing Krishna only. And so it has religious overtones in its appearance. It can be very worldly. It can involve being involved in all the things that worldly people in pursuit of material acquisition are involved in, but for the purpose of Krishna, for the pleasure of Krishna's senses. Bhakti is defined by Narada in the sutras as that which is performed by one's own senses for the pleasure of Krishna's senses. Rishikena Rishikesha Sevanam, Bhakti today. So normally the karma mark is in pursuit of my own sense fulfillment. And bhakti, by contrast, is pursuit of the fulfillment of Krishna's senses. So you can understand how the activities of bhakti can parallel those of the karma marg. You could be doing the same thing. You could be shopping for your own senses, or you could be shopping like we were in the market for Krishna's senses, to buy Krishna flutes and the deity and so forth, for example. Hmm? They look exactly the same. And... Uh, in between these two, you've got the Gyanamarg, where you have vairagya, detachment, and and it, it doesn't look at all like material pursuit. So, from that perspective, some of the Gyanamarg, they don't understand Bhakti Marg, they think it's some extended idea of the Karma Marg. Hmm? But as I'm explaining, it's it's very different, even though it may look similar. Therefore, it said, Vaishnava Makud Girim it's very. Its dip point is difficult to understand. Devotion of hmm? his or her motives. The actions may be similar to an ordinary person, but the motives are different. Nabudai, hmm? yeah, Nabujai. So difficult to understand his his or her motives. So. This karma mark, this is not something that is just relative to India. It speaks of a certain orientation 
to life, a religious orientation to life in pursuit of material acquisition. And it's the broadest um, sense of religion, the lowest end on the religious um, ladder, if you will. It's described by Prahlad when he says in the Bhagavatam, Nasa Brittisavaivanik. Don't be a merchant, be a servant. Don't be a vanik, don't be a merchant, be a, be a servant. This is a big difference. Merchant means I make an arrangement for you. You, know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. I'll do something for you, you give me this. Very good. Service is very different because even without expectation of return, just for the pleasure of Krishna's senses, that is my return. Hmm? That Krishna's senses are pleased. This is bhakti. Hmm? Especially in the Vrindavan Marga, it comes to this samarthurati, where the, he, I, these, this pleasure of Krishna's senses is fully, fully and wholly um, identified with the senses of the devotees. They have no other sense. There is a difference. There's the Krishna and there's the devotee, but there's a oneness. This is the oneness. The pleasure of his senses is their pleasure. This is fully manifest in Vrindavan, and not so much in in Dwarka, where there's some some individual sense of identity. Hmm? Uh, By comparison, on the part of the devotee, but the individuality in, in a sense of separateness is lost, even when there is the devotee and there is Krishna. So anyway, it's a very beautiful idea, and Prahlad says it very nicely. Don't be a merchant, be a servant. Servant has no expectation other than to please the master. That is the fruit. That is the result he or she wants. So, that said, as I'm saying, the majority of people in the world, well, everybody is disposed towards material acquisition. We think that by acquiring things, our life will be more complete. Hmm. Um, because we don't know ourselves, We don't know that we are a unit of happiness. We are a unit of security. We are sat, we are chit, we are ananda. Hmm. So we want to be pleased, to be pleasured. We want to be secure. Hmm. We want to to know. Hmm. We are a unit of knowing. We are a unit of loving. We are a unit of being. Uh, we want to be. We want to know. We want to love. That's the problem. Stop wanting to be, wanting to know, wanting to love. You are a unit of being, knowing, and loving. Hmm. That's the secret of life. Huh? Uh, so everyone... If we come from animality, as I say, to humanity, we we take some of the animality with us. We have now greater in, in human life greater capacity to reason, so we should reason about these things. And in human life, as I often say, we begin to ask the question why, rather than just how. So sometimes, in the pursuit of our acquisition, which we bring with us from animality, hmm, this why gets in the way. Why question. Why am I? Purpose, meaning, value, rather than just things, acquiring. Hmm? Why? 
So this is a question that's coming from consciousness, not from the natural world, but from consciousness. And quality, value, this is all relative to consciousness. So I say, we give value to matter. Otherwise it doesn't matter. Hmm? And we means the subjective sense of our self. Hmm? So this pops up in human life. It's troublesome. Hmm? Kids ask these kinds of questions. Einstein was once asked how he became so smart. He said, I never stopped asking the questions that children ask. The parents say, oh, don't here, play with something. That's too difficult, that question. You'll grow up and realize that question you can't answer. Hmm. Right? <laughs> so, so those questions. We, we remain as children, as devotees, and keep asking those questions. Hmm. Meaning, purpose. Why do we do that? <laughs> Never mind, just do it. Don't get, that's too complicated. I'm just giving a simple example. Why am I? Hmm. Nobody knows that. This is work, work. So, no, those questions. The Buddha wanted to know the answer to those questions. And he experienced that people in general were not interested in those questions. There were things, four things that stood out to him. Hmm? It said that the Buddha lived in a palace, and he was a prince, son of the king, and that the king wanted him to obviously be his heir to the throne, but his son was very smart, and um, and so he kept him inside the palace compound, which must have been rather large, but uh, the reason for that was he didn't want him to see the conditions of the world that the palace compound was trying to protect him from. But out of curiosity, one day he got his driver, chariot driver, to go out the gate, and there he found himself outside, and, and he came across four things. First thing he came across was a, um, a child being born. Hmm? And he came out of the womb, and he started crying as soon as he, and he said to the chair driver, "What's that?" And he said, "That's birth." And then the um, Buddha said, "Siddhartha said that doesn't look very pleasant, actually. Uh, I'd like to avoid that." And then the driver said, "Nobody can avoid that, Prince. Everybody has to endure birth." So then he went further along the path, and then he found a a, a leper. What's that? He said, so that's disease. He said, it doesn't look good. I'd like to avoid that. He says, no one can avoid that. Everyone is part of the world. So he's taking notes, Buddha, and then he goes a little further down the road and he saw a person suffering from old age, young people making fun of him, and so on and so forth. And the other physical, um, um, yeah, you know, the, the uh, motor functions breaking down and so forth. He said, what's that? He said, well, that's old age, and I can't avoid that either. And, of course, the next thing he found was a funeral. What happened? So he died. And he was told by the, his driver, no one can avoid that. So he saw birth, disease, old age, and death once. One time he saw them. And he thought, if this is what the world is about, then I don't want to be part of that. I have to find another way. And he left. He became the Buddha. He never returned to the palace. Once seeing those things... They're mentioned in the Gita. Knowing, knowing these things, 
uh, understanding them properly, that constitutes knowledge in this world. Hmm? What the world is like at its naked, in its naked form. No one can avoid them. Um, unless you leave the world philosophically and by spiritual pursuit and so forth. So, meanwhile, all the Hindus were pursuing material life and even extended material life, long material life, by following the Vedas, performing the right sacrifices and so on and so forth and harnessing their animality in a religious way, showing gratitude. But he saw through this, hmm? the Buddha, in that, in that he said, so if you do it all right and you, get, you acquire these things, still you have to die. Still you have to get old. Hmm? And so he, he, just, he had a sattvic kind of disposition. It said that sattvic intelligence is, is the kind of intelligence that does not allow one to be happy or content in the face of, a, of an existence that does not endure. Hmm? They can't settle in. Because hmm? hmm? sattva is giving oneself a sense of what I am. It's, it's a mode of nature, but it's a mode of nature that affords clarity of thought and the ability ultimately to discriminate between matter and spirit. And so he could discriminate between that which is enduring and which is not. And however nicely you paint it or decorate it, hmm? the world is full of birth, death, disease, and old age, something like that. So the whole elaborate um, world of material acquisition by adherence to the Veda, which is the general mass of people, and again, this is not something just particular to India. You can find it in every religious tradition. You're going to have, you know, the 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 the... the, the suicide bombers in Islam, they want to go to heaven and have 99 virgins and live there for a long time and whatever. Uh, they want, um, it's a religious life in pursuit of things. Christianity, we have it too. We have it in Hinduism. It's the largest kind of face of religious life. And it's problematic because because of its ideal, really. It's an ideal that involves material acquisition, taking. So as long as, we're ta- as long as we are takers, how can we be lovers? And so that orientation is always going to have us at odds to one extent or another with others. And therefore you find these stories in the Bhagavatam. This is what these stories are about. Someone is on earth performing the sacrifice and Indra becomes upset in heaven. Hmm? He comes and foils the sacrifice because he knows that that guy does the sacrifice, he's going to get my place in heaven. And so the gods are concerned, Indra's concerned about his place in heaven. Hmm? So inevitably, invariably, in life of material acquisition, however nicely you do it, however religiously and however in accordance with the scripture, it still makes for a lifestyle and a world in which we are at odds with others. Hmm? Hmm. And so it takes many shapes. I mean, people are at odds with others, period. And then there's the religious form where people are, are still at odds with one another to some extent, and sometimes it blows up and becomes very ugly and religious wars are there, and then the, the general people who are after the same things <laughs> say, wars are bad. 
Religion is bad because it brings these wars and just see, why should I do that to just be like them um, and so forth. So um, it's uh, it's a very superficial um, kind of spiritual orientation and at its bottom, what's it about? So I can think, why should I do that to acquire when I can do it in another way? And I don't see any gods anyway and I just go get it over here and... Um, of course, it's more thought out because it's thought there will be reper- repercussions if we do it like that and so forth. But still, it's problematic. Hmm? So from the bhakti point of view, we weigh in on that and um, therefore Krishna says, Sarva Dharma Prajya Forget this, this path of Dharma and all the gods and goddesses and just surrender to me. Hmm? That's a categorically different uh, approach. Hmm. So, and in every religious tradition, there are the mystics also who have that approach. You have your Sufis, you have the Christian mystics. Um, um, so, in a different tradition, Hinduism has its mystics. So, you have your religious orientation and you have your mystical orientation. The religious, or, religious orientation is about getting things, the mystical orientation is about giving up things. Hmm with the knowing and the insight that I'm not a thing. Hmm? And so, what am I? And I am Sat, Jit, Ananda, for example. So, Buddha was faced with a large contingent of people who professed to be followers of the Vedas who were only interested in material acquisition. And in the context of material acquisition, even within the Vedas, there are things that are done um, with a license that are nonetheless things that seem undesirable or less less desirable. For example, if you want to eat a goat, then you have to perform a certain sacrifice in the Vedas. And at midnight, in the dark moon, and all this ritual has to this day is described like this. And then just before you kill the goat, you have to whisper in his ear, Mamsa, Mihi, Mihi, means now I'm killing you. And as a result, in the future, you will be able to kill me. So how many times are you going to kill that goat and go the whole thing at midnight and say anything? What am I saying here? So I can eat it. So then you're supposed to, you know, supposed to give it up. Mm-hmm. But... Um, as we see also in religious ritualistic life, sometimes the, the meanings of them are lost, and the overarching purpose of the Veda, these sections of the Vedas, is to is to is to awaken faith in the Veda themselves, and then people will look more deeply into what they're saying. And the one part of the Veda that's about the, the Upanishads, it's a smaller section. It's about spiritual life rather than religious life, and ultimately about love of God then you gradually become interested in that. But it doesn't always happen. People get distracted, empty empty rituals are performed, and, and so on and so forth. Um, so the Buddha was, apparently, the idea is exposed to that kind of a thing. And so he, his response to the um, Veda was that, that um, if this is what the Veda is about, I'm not interested. Now, we would say the same thing. But we know there's more to the Veda than, than that, there's the Upanishads. If you look at the Buddha's pursuit, 
it's fairly Upanishadic. Although he he denounces the idea that that the Vedas are unauthored and their form of revelation, but his whole approach, as we discussed, is very similar to a jnani and and the pursuit of de- the deconstruction of the material ego, who, who is the taker, the that which is in pursuit of acquisition and so forth. Hmm by which it thinks it will be fortified, the I am American, I am Indian, I am man, woman, sense of self, is uh, a taker. So he wanted to deconstruct that taker, and that's what the Upanishads talk about as well. So his is, his, Buddhism is kind of an outgrowth of the Upanishadic sensibilities, hmm? although he does not um, seek to support it um, because... He, the idea is that he was presented with the idea that the Vedas are revelation, therefore they should be followed. Hmm. Um, but he thought, if revelation tells you to do these things that are stupid, that I can figure out with my own common sense, then why should I do them? Hmm. So, I mean, that's a Vaishnava explanation of the Buddha. I mean, it's, it is a little hard to imagine that he wasn't acquainted at all with the Upanishadic tradition, but, but what I meant when I said that is that the Buddha's pursuit is similar to what the pursuit in the Upanishads are about. The pursuit of, not of things, but of um, really an end of suffering. Sanatana Goswami says, the bliss of Brahman is the end of suffering. So as much as there's happiness in ending suffering, he says, that's what the bliss of Brahman is. Very small in comparison to the the bliss of Prem. So again, the Buddha and the Shankar's idea, very, very, very similar. Shankar, of course, he took, and Ashok became emperor, and he became Buddhist, so many people became Buddhists as a result. So Shankar takes the same kind of Buddhist sensibilities and then explains them based on the Upanishads and, and emphasizes eternal consciousness, which is not emphasized by the, by the Buddha. The Buddha is emphasizing simply deconstruct the false self, as if to say, just do that and the real self will come out anyway. Hmm. Whatever it is, you don't have to worry about that. That's what you'll be left with. Hmm? It just and it says it's reasonable to, to to conclude that that we suffer in the world and we suffer because of the, the thirst to acquire. So give up the thirst for acquiring. Hmm? That's reasonable, and then you will end suffering. How do you do that? So then he gives a moral life, the eightfold path. Uh, conduct oneself in a moral, moral way, and of course, then he has the contemplation um, side of it. So it's basically the kind of lifestyle um, advocated in the uh, Upanishads. He was a monastic renunciate. Um, so it's 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 kind of an outgrowth out of Hinduism, and you, you know, so you find karma reincarnation, all these concepts 
are there. The subtle world of gods and goddesses is also there. The mind is is a reality. There's there's psychic matter and and, and physical matter. Hmm? Nirvana, the word nirvana is used in the Gita a number of times. Hmm? So these concepts aren't coming out of his head entirely. Hmm? He was a Hindu, but he formed his own religion that rejects the the religious side of Hinduism. Hmm? Just like if I could say, hey, you know, uh, I went to the Jesus camp. You ever see the movie, The Jesus Camp? I went to the Jesus Camp and I decided I'm not interested in Christianity, okay? That's weird. You know, it's a, it was a movie where they had these kids in the Jesus Camp and they were teaching them to kill other people and, you know, you know, the demons out there, the Satan-influenced people. It's very cultic uh, to the extreme and so forth. So you could go to that and say, I want nothing to do with Christianity. So this is like Buddha, I want nothing to do with Hinduism. Because he saw a, a representation of Hinduism that he was exposed to that was about material acquisition and perhaps you know worse in some instances, animal sacrifices and so forth. He couldn't relate to it. He said, if that's, what, if that's what it's about, I'm not interested. I'm interested in something else. But what he's actually interested in is is actually something that's in, in the mystical tradition of the uh, of the Veda and Upanishadic side, which is the smaller section of people. Uh, comparatively, therefore, Krishna says, I guess, Trigunya Vishaya Veda. Mostly the Vedas deal with these things, modes of nature. Those who are not interested in the modes of nature, but the Nirguna, the transcendence, where do you even find them? Hmm? North Carolina? You know, <laughs> somewhere, you know. Uh, in the Himalayas, in a cave. So they're just, you know, they're not uh, readily um, available. So people come to the conclusion and then they go, you know, to remote places to find such a thing. So the Buddha was like that, uh, in a sense. And, um, and um, he very much, his path is very much based on Reasoning, it's rather reasoning in a simple way, as I said, as to the nature of suffering and and how it ended, and it gets complicated in its logic and 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 whatnot. Um, But it's what's one of the reasons it's popular today because it's popular to be rational, Hmm? or vacuous that actually is, and especially if if rational means. If, you, if your conclusion of what's rational is materialism, then you know you've just made your reason meaningless, basically. In the context of materialism that you've arrived at, materialism you've arrived at by reasoning, the very doctrine of materialism renders your reasoning absolutely no more meaningful in 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 its in its explanation than the sound of rain falling on the roof. Hmm. Materialism. There is no meaning. There is no purpose. You can make up a purpose, but but there is no real purpose. And and there is no there is no there is in materialism there is no agent of action called a self. Hmm. There's only 
material, physical forces. That's all there is, it's physical forces. And apparently in materialism, they interact in such a way that this illusion of a self appears at some point. And, and, and then you make up meaning and, and so forth. But um, as much as there is in materialism no agent of action, no self, um, then reason has no meaning either. An interesting argument about materialism came to mind the other day upon reading something. I started to write a little something about it, but there's the doctrine uh, that's of, of intelligent design. It's, uh, it's I wouldn't call it a Christian argument, but Christians have probably um, initiated it, but many different theistic people, um, uh, one way or another, loosely attach themselves to it, that God designed the world and so forth. Well, the, the theory of materialism is that by the combination of material components in a certain way, non-living matter, by combining it in a certain way, life manifests. That's materialism. Intelligent design is that by the combination of certain non-living parts, life manifests. <laughs> the only difference is who put the puzzle together. <laughs> so in intelligent design, God put it together. But it's just material parts, non, non-living things becoming living, which is the argument of material design against materialism that life doesn't... <laughs> so this is, and this um, argument is a... Like in classical theism, God is external to the world. Somehow He makes, takes the part, manifests the world, makes the parts, and brings about about life. And um, the Gaudi perspective, the Hindu perspective, is a the- pantheistic or a panentheistic. In our case, in the Vaishnava case, panentheistic worldview, where life is consciousness. Bi- biological life is only a reflection of consciousness. Consciousness is life, and it's part of the makeup of the world. There's matter and there's consciousness. Hmm? And the world is being driven by consciousness. So material forms are appearing hmm, uh, in a way that's, that's ultimately being driven by, by consciousness. And they facilitate consciousness to one extent or another. And when the consciousness is gone, well, then that's the end of the biological organism. Hmm? It's an interesting difference there. So, um, at any rate, materialism, how do we get to that? It's one thing, but um, the Buddha, you know, he had a, he, his, he has, his idea is popular among some people because it's thought to not require any faith, belief in any god, or any supernatural it's just about ending suffering. Hmm? This is a very kind of like um, this is this is what you call Buddhism intimidated by materialism, extremely intimidated by scientism. Hmm? 
which is a loud voice, and and you better watch out for it, because especially if you're you're getting a degree in the sciences, because if you don't buy into it, you're not going to get a job. Hmm. Um, so it's a powerful voice. It's a powerful, powerful paradigm at this time in the world, hmm. and it's it. There's reasons for it, and there's some good reasons for it too. I mean, it, because it's productive of things and conveniences and so forth. It works on some level. You measure here, and you and you do, and you get that. Hey, that's truth. That's just like meter reading is what it is. Hmm? Um, it's not solving the problems of life or answering the, the, what what life is about. Hmm? Um, but at any rate, it's popular in the material world at this time. Um, and and so if you want a spirituality, but you want to be with the... not be a nut, hmm? not be, you know, you want to be with the in-crowd or whatever, you know, the group think, then... Buddhism's not bad because you don't have to believe in the supernatural and you can still be spiritual. And, and they, so they are modern-day Western Buddhists who say it's not even necessarily the doctrine of Buddhism that there's reincarnation. Hmm? I mean, they go so far to try to... Buddha was not about doctrine. Hmm? And I've seen this. It's just, it's, I like, but you people are really intimidated by materialism in your in your spiritual uh, thinking and so forth. Hmm? Uh, so anyway, it lends itself a little bit to that. But but to follow the life of the Buddha. That's another thing. Hmm? And of course, the Buddha's main focus being the deconstruction of the uh, ego. Hmm? is, from the Vaishnava perspective, just a focus that doesn't tell the whole story. Because what happens when it is deconstructed? Hmm? Is there a real self? And there are some Buddhists who say there is, but the Buddha didn't emphasize it. Because if I say to you, you have to destroy yourself so that you can be yourself, that's a little too confusing. So just deconstruct yourself. It's false. That's true. What the Buddha said is entirely true. Deconstruct the false self. Yes. And you will end suffering. Yes. Very true. Hmm. Is there a God? No need to talk about that. Is there not? There's no need to talk about that. Hmm? Just focus here, okay. You suffering? Yes. You want to end it? Yes. Okay. Here's how you do it. Hmm. It's an interesting approach. Hmm. So that's what we were talking about. That was the idea. But Buddhism, you know, it grows out of Hinduism. So you carry all this, a lot of Hindu baggage comes with it, if you will. Now people want to strip it of all of that, some people. Just to be clear then, when you said Buddhism stems from Upanishads, it was sensibility. Yeah. Strictly, because I was thinking, is Buddhism. You know, cut off from Vedanta Sutra, and that's why we see such a difference between yeah. the Gaudiya, well, 
looking at the Upanishads, and then the other Sampradayas are looking at the Vedanta Sutras. Well, the Vedanta Sutra is an explanation of the Upanishads. Yeah. They're not separate. No. So the Buddha is not looking at either the Vedanta Sutra or the Upanishads. He's he's looking just, hey, why believe in this? Look at what the crazy people do who believe in these Vedas. Just um, be reasonable. Again, you could see practically witness and experience that um, the life of material acquisition is a life of suffering. So the antithesis will be the end of suffering. And that's true, but if the end of suffering is an impoverished idea of happiness. And this is the point of the, of the Vaishnavas. Ending suffering is an impoverished idea of happiness. Not taking is an impoverished notion of loving. It's part of loving. It's part of happiness. But happiness is something much more. Love is something so much more than that as well. And for that, for loving, you need an object of love and and you need to serve and so on and so forth. If you love someone, you serve them. Common sense. So what else? Yes. I notice in my in my own life and in, in going to work that you that everybody that I'm associated with, they all have this drive to be something. They want to make themselves a success in the world and they want to advance and they want to go up the career ladder and have a, a more secure position. And I'm just thinking that it's it's so important for me to, to be able to come back here where people who yeah. As their priority, like my the first thing in my life is I want to be devoted to Krishna, mm. and my, my second, you know, uh, they they don't because everybody else has their priorities. Like I want that security, and I, I when I go there, I, I feel like that I feel their impressions. I, I you know I, I get their association. I think maybe I should. Go forward in the world, and then I think I, I already have a first priority. Mm-hmm. And how do I grow and cultivate that sense of this is what I'm about? And then I have other things that go on in life, and I take care of those things, and those are my secondary things. But I, ha- I already have something that that's my priority. Mm-hmm. You've already acquired something more valuable. Yeah, yeah. So that's why the value of these programs. Right? and association, and you're reminded of that. And that becomes the core then of your life, and the other parts comes, becomes like music in the background. By habit, you go through it as much as is required for your lifestyle, which is in pursuit of bhakti. Hmm? And it depends upon our lifestyle. For householder, for example, we may need some income and so forth. But that becomes like secondary, and and you, you have to pay attention to it so that you do it right, and you don't get fired and so forth, um, but it's but it's not your the driving force in your life. Hmm? Driving force is something else, and that will enable you to see in the workplace and in the world things very differently hmm? from them from them and others do, and even drive inspiration in that situation for your um, ideals, goals. Hmm? You can see other people in their pursuit of them what they're spending their valuable human energy they're you're a paramedic so you know where do you go on the paramedic paramedic 
ladder. I don't know exactly, but here's a person, and they're invested entirely with the, or their entire human energy to somewhere move up the paramedic ladder. And you're looking at that and going, you know, like I'm looking at the Krishna consciousness here. This is giving your whole human energy for this, so that you can do this. Have a bigger house. You already got a house. You can have a bigger house, and a bigger car, and take care of your kids better, and so on and so forth. So, which is so relative, and and you know, you might take care of them as, as best you can, and still you don't know what's going to happen, how that's going to turn out, right? So, I mean, so you can see that. Jeez, same human energy. You can see the, how shallow the goal is. Now, it doesn't mean that devotees who have a high goal of the Krishna consciousness can't work in the world if their approach to Krishna consciousness requires that and be good in their field and, and so forth and even want to get a raise and, and so forth. But, but it's with a bigger... It's, 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 it's inside of a much bigger circle of interest and concern. Without that, it just seems like, gosh, all the human energy for that, that's so insignificant. You won't know the self by becoming a big success. That's right. That's right. By becoming a Brahma, Krishna says. So, that's as big as it gets, so. That example is given to emphasize the point. And so many examples in the Bhagavatam of kings and so forth. And there are simple lessons that are being taught in this life of a man who had everything. Wasn't happy. We can all nod our heads, but how well have we learned the lesson? <laughs> you know, on some level we're trying to be a king. <laughs> so, you know, some, there's a very, some, some core common sense even, spiritual truths will change your life if you can really digest them. Hmm? It will radically change your life if you can digest them, put them in place. And you hear the story, and you oh, yeah, I know that. And the king had everything, he wasn't happy, you know. Can we hear another story with a little more deeper, you know, meaning and insight to it. My intelligence is not satisfied by that. I've heard that story a few times. Hmm? One time, Bhakti Balabhatirtamarsh, he said, he was asked about the Prahlad story in the Chaitanya Church, in the Bhagavatam, Prahlad Mishringa. And he said that uh, sometimes people say, I've already heard that story. Can we hear another one? He said, whoever says that has never, has not heard the story because if you could do what Prahlad did is the point, you'd be celebrated throughout the you know, world, so to speak. So, yes, there are, there are higher devotional ideals than the basic Shuddha-bhakta ideal of Prahlad. But Prahlad is, you have to go through what Prahlad Prahlad's position to get anywhere else. So that's like the door with the beginning of Shuddha Bhakti. Hmm? No, no material desire. And the Shingha Bhagavan is saying, take something from me, I'm here. No, no, I don't want anything. Take something, I'm God. I'd be full con- Before 
come before people and who want benedictions, I give them. Take. I don't want anything. I don't want anything. Take, take. No. I'll make it to China. I'll make it to China. No, you're different. So, <laughs> so, uh, as I say, these are, are a lot of the um, foundational points are very simple and they're, they're understood by people. At least they'll nod their head and go, yeah, 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 but then to act accordingly, hmm, really, on your level where you're at, it's not just, yeah, I know, I don't want to become a king, I don't want to become, you know, corporate CEO. Those guys are gross. Yeah. <laughs> but someone they asked me the other day, like, I was explaining something about Krishna consciousness, and he said, what about, you know, what about the, they're doing this and they're doing that, and he's talking about the corporate, you know, um, corporatism and, and exploitation and so forth. They're doing this and they're doing that. And I said, who are they? And I said, when you understand that you are they, then you can solve the problem. You are they. You are a corporatist on some level. Hmm? You're complaining about what they're doing. Hmm? But on some level, you are doing the same thing. Hmm? That's a fact. You can watch a herd of cows. Hmm? The smallest cow is always getting pushed around. So you, oh, that poor thing, that poor. You take that little cow and put her in a herd of other cows that are all smaller, and then does she, does she, what she do? She starts pushing them around instead of thinking, I was pushed around, now I don't want to push anybody around. No. So, anyway, on some level, material life means it's un, un, unavoidable that we are, you know, the CEO and we're taking and other people are, we're takers, in other words. Hmm? We're exploiting as much as the CEO or whatever exploits. Material life is a, is a life of exploitation. We, we, we have identified with ourselves with the body. If we don't take from the environment, then it appears that the body and the bodily sense of self will be in jeopardy. Hmm? So, we're hunting and Look over your shoulder, you're being hunted. Also, this is the principle of, of karma. So, you know, you should take all that angst against, you know, the 1% of 1%. They're so bad. Yeah, they're just a big example of what you are a small example of, actually. And, and so, uproot it from yourself. Mm-hmm. uprooted from yourself entirely. That's the teaching of the Gita. And you'll become big mm-hmm. by becoming small, mm-hmm. by not being a taker. Mm-hmm. There's something to be said for attaching oneself to better forms of badness, <laughs> better forms of exploitation, milder forms, rather than you know, ugly, ob- mm-hmm. obvious forms. Mm-hmm. But it's important to understand the underlying reality of material existence. It's not going to be solved by, you know, electing Bernie Sanders or something, you know. It's not going to save the world, I can tell you that. Uh, you know, just to give an example, a modern example. So, yeah. To end greed. Well, where does it end? <laughs> Is there any in you? Okay, then start there. Hmm. 
That's my political speech. Start there. There's greed in everyone. It's not like the Pope there. Uh, it's true. Basic spiritual truth and what the world would be like if everybody addressed this. It would, it would solve the problems. It sounded very simplistic, but it really it's not simplistic. It's, it's unrealistic. Okay, then expect the problems to continue. It's unavoidable. There's no way around it. The basic truths of spiritual life are the solutions to all the problems. You cannot come up with another formula that will solve all the problems. Only a spiritual problem, only a spiritual solution really addresses all the problems. The reason it's not taken up is it seems unrealistic, because it has as its goal you becoming supernatural, hmm? transcending the limits of your humanity, giving up greed, lust. Hey, they will say, I don't even know if I want to give that up. Hmm. What would life be without that? Try it. Hmm? This is the problem. These are the problems. So... If you look carefully at sadhana, what we're talking about, sadhana, spiritual practice, it's, it is a solution to all the problems of life. But, but again, it's, 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 it asks a lot. <laughs> what do you expect? You want a comprehensive solution to all the problems of life and it should be cheap? Buy it at Walmart? No, it's expensive, yeah. What does it cost? Everything you have. Hmm. Any other questions? <laughs> <laughs> Everything you have. I, mean, I think that's too much. What, to solve all the problems? Hmm? But how if I do that, it will solve all the problems? You start with your problems. Solve all your problems. And then you'd be an example. Hmm? And no one will listen to you. But, well. <laughs> but that's the world. Hmm? Still, what you say is right. Hmm? And actions speak louder than words. If you can exemplify it, then it will, it will speak to some. Hmm? You have to start somewhere. You start there. Hmm? It's undeniable. This is a solution to all the problems. It doesn't matter how sophisticated of another solution you come up with. It's just... It, it's not going to work. Hmm? And people know that. But they think, anyway, something's better than nothing. We, we try this. And, hmm? Because the whole solution... That's too complicated. And so you can be sure. Material world has no beginning. You know what else it has? It has no end. <laughs> it can end for you, but it will go on forever. That's a fact. Hmm. All right, let's stop there. Sisri Gaurada Madhava Ki Jai, Gaur Bhaktivinda Ki Jai.